Hello and welcome to Movement, the weekly podcast for South Aussie Baptists to listen and imagine together. Each fortnight, we interview a leader from within our movement and then ask them to share one of their recent sermons with us the following week. Welcome back. Last week we had a great chat with Mary Ackers, who's our youth ministry facilitator here at Baptist Churches. And this week Mary's back to share a sermon with us. So Mary, first question, why did you choose this sermon to share with us? I chose this sermon uh, because I... We picked a series from First Peter and it was, you know, we thought it would fit well with our current season of life with COVID and just looking to find something to ground ourselves in. And yeah, for me, it was a real passage uh, that was uh, like a, with a real message of hope, mm-hmm. but also a strong kind of message about how we can live our lives in times of uncertainty to make sure that we're um, not just going with the flow maybe, but holding fast to God, but also living in a way that shines his glory in our lives as well. Excellent. And anything would be helpful for people to know when and where this was preached or anything? Oh, it was preached at Salisbury Baptist. That's yeah. probably a good home thing church. to know. Excellent. Yeah, my home church. It was part of a series. It was the second second or third in the series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, I will say the passage uh, wasn't in the recording. So it's right. the passage of scripture that it's based on is First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through to chapter 2, verse 3. So if you want to read it before you listen to the rest of the recording, it might be a good idea because I didn't really reference it that much. Well, I did, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, that might be helpful if people have a read of, and then we'll look forward to listening to the sermon. Awesome. Thanks. I really appreciated uh, as I was preparing, reflecting a little bit on um, a statement that James included last week around Martin Luther and his comments uh, about how much there actually is contained in this book. Um, and... Um, feeling a bit overwhelmed with the depth of theology and, uh, and content that's there um, coming to this morning, feeling a bit like maybe I'm just scratching the surface <laughs> and uh, hopefully I'm scratching away at the right parts and not missing something. Uh, so I just wanted to share with you a verse that popped to mind uh, from Isaiah. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word, that is the Lord's word, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Uh, Which is a great encouragement to me and I hope that each of you are able to um, pull something out of today's message and that Lord speaks to you uh, where you're at today. So, um, yeah, let's begin. (laughs) Uh, Some of you might have seen on Facebook, uh, I shared a question that I received from a student at work this week. It was a very simple question. Are rabbits real? (laughs) Now, normally I get, are unicorns real? I've I've had, uh, is God real? Which is an interesting uh, one to answer. Are rabbits, sorry. Are rabbits real, is the question. Yes, and I've had lots of things asked of me uh, in the years that I've been at school. This was the question posed to me by a curious reception student. And So for those of you that don't know, I work at a primary school about 20 minutes further north of here in Gawler. And we're kind of just on the edge between uh, metro and rural because of where we are located. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to tell which of those two we are. But we do have ever-present rabbit holes 
We have signs in the yard that warn us of snakes all year round and a long gravel driveway at the back. And these things seem to indicate that we're more of a country school than a city school. So on this particular day, I was walking with the student between classrooms and he spotted a hole going under one of the buildings. And he said, what's that? And I said, oh, it's probably just a rabbit hole. And he, that's when he says, well, are rabbits real? I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, what a strange question. And he said to me, oh, my mum and my sister, his sister goes to our school too, my mum and my sister always see the rabbits, but I've never seen them. So maybe he was really asking me, are rabbits really here at this school? Are they really real here? Because he's never seen one for himself. Maybe he really doubted the existence of rabbits in general. But what uh, the point of this story is, is that he hadn't actually seen the rabbits with his own eyes, and so he had doubts about whether or not they existed. He only had the word of his family, and now uh, something of a confirmation from me to say that rabbits really do exist. So last week we began our new series looking at the book of 1 Peter. And we heard from James uh, via me <laughs> about what it means to be elect expats. So we're chosen by God and we are rebirthed into a new inheritance, a living hope, while at the same time we are foreigners living in a world that doesn't understand us. And we're waiting for the time when we're able to return home or to be at home with, in the kingdom of God. So the author of the book uh, also mentions being far from our king. And we touched on this briefly last week. It's the moment where Peter praised the people for believing in and loving Jesus, even though they had not seen him. Although they'd never set their eyes on Jesus, as uh, we too have never set our eyes on Jesus, we don't need to ask, is he real? The audience of this letter and we ourselves, we know that he is real. So as we move to the next passage from this letter, we are beginning to explore the consequences of this belief. We're moving through our faith to uh, levels of action. So I, I wonder what my young friend will do with this new information and this confirmation of the great legend of rabbits. And I think about uh, my own faith and I wonder, what do I do with my belief uh, in and my love of Jesus? How do I live if this particular rabbit is real? So thankfully, in this passage, we find some answers. Uh, Peter writes, therefore, this is at the beginning of the passage, therefore, uh, and that therefore indicates uh, on the basis of what we heard previously, you're being chosen by God, your faith, and your promised inheritance. On the basis of these things, with an alert and sober mindset, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Christ is revealed at his coming. So our first imperative in this life of knowing that Jesus is real is to have hope. Peter begins with the idea of getting our minds right and ready for what is to come. He calls the listener to be alert. The ESV uh, says, prepare your minds for action. 
which is, I think, a bit of an interesting phrase. We uh, don't always think of our mind as an area where action or activity takes place the same way that our bodies do. Uh, so that our bodies engage in action, I suppose. Uh, but it is an area where we do need to be prepared to take action. Later on in the passage, there are some relational sins that are mentioned. Uh, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, those sorts of things. The thing about these is that they first enter our minds as thoughts before they come out of our, mind, uh, out of our mouths uh, as statements or accusations and before they uh, are shown in our body through actions. So we need to be careful to cultivate a mind that remains alert to these thoughts taking hold. We prepare our minds to take action against our former ways of thinking that we had before we knew that Jesus was real. We are also call, uh, called to be sober-minded. Uh, that is a level of self-control, of sort of composure. As those who believe in God and God's future, we're not to be swayed by events going on around us. So this doesn't mean that we're unaffected by our circumstances. We still are allowed to have emotions uh, I think of the verse that says, like, we weep with those who weep. We are sympathetic, empathetic, um, and we are affected by the things that happen. We feel the effects of life. But the point is that we're not to be directed by outside influences uh, to this kind of reactionary way of living. Instead, we're held firm and strong by our living hope in Jesus. A life with Jesus is playing the long game and it comes with a sober, eternal perspective that grounds us. So at this point, it's worth uh, pointing out, uh, perhaps uh, some of you know this already, this letter is understood to be written to a Christian community that is uh, facing or is about to face some level of difficulty because of their faith. We don't know exactly what this level of persecution or pressure is, whether it's direct or indirect, how it's sort of come about, but we know that there was trouble brewing on the horizon for the people who were reading this letter. So in this regard, the, the writing is an encouragement to the community of believers to remain faithful and hopeful together as they navigate these difficult times. Uh, a quote that has meant a lot to me over the years is this one. Um, hopefully it's large enough. It says, We are the trees whom shaking fastens more. From the poet George Herbert. So when trees experience windy conditions, it helps to strengthen their trunk and their limbs, and they grow resilient and strong, and they're able to withstand environmental changes and disruption. If anyone's into um, indoor plants, sometimes you are encouraged to weakly shake your plants <laughs> to simulate wind because otherwise they are weak. They get to a certain point uh, in their growth and like, they start to fall over and things. Like. So trees actually, they need this like, strengthening, this turbulence. So for Christians, being alert and sober-minded in the midst of trouble 
is a way of leaning into, as I said, turbulence and affliction, as it strengthens us and it makes us reach further into the soil of hope and take a firm grasp on the reality that grounds us, this reality of God's grace. When we're able to do this, and that's both as individual Christians and as a community of Christians, we build together a resilient and long-lasting faith. So we come now to the hope that we are to have. Wayne Grudem describes the hope expressed in this passage as one of confident expectation. This is more than simply wishful thinking or dreaming of something better. It is a hope underpinned by confidence in the one who promises, an expectation that this hope will be fulfilled. With alert and sober minds, we are called to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us. This is no half-held hope or hope plus hope, hope here plus hope there. It is an utterly courageous anticipation. Last week we learned that we are rebirthed by God into a new inheritance. And now we are being called by the author to place our hope completely on the grace, the inheritance that we are yet to receive. Hope can be a really hard thing for us to grasp because it's about the future and things that haven't happened yet. But we have a secret weapon that makes our hope trustworthy. Our hope as Jesus followers means more, means something because of the one in whom we place our hope. So just as we are called to have hope in God, we are also called to examine our lives and be holy. This call to be holy is preceded by the command to separate ourselves from the evil desires that we had in our former life. Do not conform, it says. And again, this is the sense of, being, uh, of not being swayed or being changeable and fallible, but instead holding fast to what you know to be true. We're to fashion ourselves after the one who is holy, to follow after God's pattern of behaviour, and to show ourselves to be God's people. In verse 16 we read, Be holy because I am holy. And these, these same words are found several times in the book of Leviticus. This is the book of the Torah that has a key focus uh, of outlining how Israel were to be God's people, God's holy people. The law contained within Leviticus is intended to set the nation of Israel apart from other nations, to teach them to live a different way of life than those around them in order to show that they belonged to God alone and to be a witness to God's intended progress for humanity. It's no mistake that Peter included these words in his letter. He is reminding his audience of their imperative to follow after the way of God to live distinctly different lives to those around them as a way of showing themselves to be God's people alone and to model this for others. So what then does it mean to be holy in the context of this passage? It is not living the way we lived in our former lives when we were ignorant of God's grace. And we need to be careful not to pattern our, life, our new life against the old life that we were living. 
We should be careful also not to uh, model our new life against the empty way of life that has been handed down to us from our ancestors. Today one would argue that we have culturally uh, shifted away from the idea that wisdom uh, of a wisdom that's handed down through the ages. Due to certain moments in history and generational shifts in thinking, we have uh, become a society that values our own experience and our peers' experience uh, of evaluate, uh, sorry, our own experiences and evaluation of the way that things are above uh, what we've been told about the way that things have always been. And this has uh, positive effects and negative effects. Some wisdom is very wise. But Peter points out here that some of the wisdom that we receive through uh, the flow of generations is, is useless, it's futile. It's telling us to strive for a life that doesn't mean anything. And in many ways, we preserve the ways of the past or even the ways of other people as a sort of a method of informing how we tackle the future. We need to examine these for the truth uh, that they may or may not contain. Peter reminds us of the emptiness and futility in placing our trust in these traditions apart from God. And he recalls that we've been removed from this pointless cycle of living through the redemption found in Jesus. Through this redemption, uh, which we will come back to, we are able to become obedient children, reforming our lives and purifying ourselves so that, as we read in verse 22, we have sincere love, honest, deep, fervent love from the heart that we extend to one another. For Peter, this is the first mark of holiness, the ability to love our community from the very depths of our hearts. And he knows that in the turbulent times that are coming, the community of God's people need this familial love more than ever. It's what will keep them together. This love is made possible by the imperishable, unchangeable nature of God's word. And this word encapsulates the person of Jesus, so who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and his redeeming work that changes us permanently for the better. This is the gospel that we know, who Jesus is and what he has done. Peter goes on to say, therefore, and again, Therefore, that is because of the work of Jesus that has been taught to you through the gospel and through your pure love for one another. Rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander. Now, I don't know about you, but these five sins uh, are mentioned, that are mentioned specifically call to mind a very specific uh, way of living, uh, might even have a specific people in mind uh, that some of these words bring up for me. They're relational termites. They eat away at the community that we build. They destroy what brings us together. They're community killers. Think about these sins, malice, you know, like this level of hatred, 
deceit, lying, hypocrisy, being a false version of who you really are, jealousy and envy, slander, again, like saying things about people that isn't true. They really like destroy the love that we have for one another. Peter calls us to get rid of them, to repent and turn away from these sins. The image is that of casting aside sin as one would a dirty item of clothing. They're to be thrown away in favour of sincere love, the sincere love that we are called to have in our new holy life. Our old perishable lives can be wasted on this soul-destroying way of living. But in the precious, imperishable new birth that we are called to, we are called to live for something greater. We are called to reach deeper into the grace of God and let it be our supply for hope and holiness, even when, and especially when, things are difficult. So we are not to act like petulant children, but instead like newborn babies. We should crave the nourishment of pure spiritual milk, the enduring word of God. We look to the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, as a taste of the Lord's goodness. And because we have experienced this goodness through salvation and redemption in Jesus, we should continue to seek after the teaching of God so that we can grow and mature together as those who have their hope fully in God, diving ever deeply, ever more deeply into the holy life. So we are called to this holy life, but how can we ever hope to be holy in the way that God is holy? And what is it that underpins our hope? We look to verse 17, we find the beginning of an explanation. The author writes that, we, that because we call on a father who judges impartially, he has no preference for any one person, we should live out our time as foreigners, as spiritual expats, with reverent fear. Now, fear in our faith can be a tricky subject because we uh, have sort of two tendencies. We either lean heavily into fear and we raise an image of an angry God that is Uh, frankly unhelpful and quite damaging or on the other hand we remember uh, only God's love and his relational nature and uh, undervalue our respect and fear of God. We need to balance these, have a healthy reverence for the fact that there are consequences to disobeying God. Defiance and rebellion do not go unnoticed And choosing to go in an unholy direction will have repercussions. This also encapsulates an awe and a reverence toward God and what he has done for us. What informs this uh, reverence and respect is a proper understanding of the high price God paid for our redemption. We are saved from our former empty way of life not with cheap and perishable things like silver and gold. These things might be of value to us now, but they fade and will disappear in the long game of eternity. So we're not saved with the cheap and perishable things, 
but we are saved by the precious blood of Christ. So we sit with this for a moment. Peter calls Jesus the lamb without blemish or defect. He brings to mind the Jewish sacrificial system. The arrangement through which the people of Israel paid the price to cover their sins. If they had done something wrong, they would go and they would sacrifice an animal as the way of restoring their relationship with God and covering their sin. The Jewish people knew this. They knew that the price of redeeming their sins was the ritual sacrifice of perfect animals that took their place of punishment. But to cover the high price of all of humanity's sin throughout history, something much greater than a lamb or a calf was needed. Instead, it was God's own son. Perfect. Prepared and ready since the creation of the world and revealed to us as a pure and spotless sacrifice whose precious blood ran unhindered to pay for our sins. When we begin to understand the depth of this redemption, we cannot help but take seriously the command to holy living. Uh, scholar Roger M. Raymer writes that holy living is motivated by a God-fearing faith which does not take lightly what was purchased at so great a cost. This was the price of our freedom. God in flesh, in flesh and blood, killed by us, killed for us. Christ's death paid the high price for our redemption. But the story does not end there. After Jesus died, he lived. In verse 21, we read that through Jesus, we believe in God. God who also raised Jesus from death and glorified him through his ascension to the throne at God's side. It is for this reason, through the resurrection and glory, that we are able to put our faith and our hope in God. Not only did Jesus die to redeem us, but he was raised to new life by God's power and he's ruling beside God even now. Though we have not yet received the grace of our full inheritance, we have assurance that God is able and he will do as he has promised for us because he has already done so in Jesus. It is the power of God raising Jesus to new life that proves and solidifies our hope. The precious blood of the perfect lamb is the provision for our lives of holiness. The resurrection and rule of Jesus is the reason for our hope. When we begin to grasp the importance of Jesus' work, his death and resurrection, we become forever changed by its power to increase our hope and persuade us to holiness as God's obedient children. We're going to move straight into a time of communion where we can reflect on these things. So I'll ask uh, that our volunteers come to give out the bread. This bread represents the body of Christ. 
that was broken. And it's easy for us to have a sanitised view of what happened on the cross. But it was a real human who was killed that day. His body was broken. His blood was spilled. So as we reflect on the nature of Jesus as a human, fully God and fully human, as you take the bread, reflect on this high price that has covered our sins. Isaiah 53 reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Continuing on. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is the truth of Jesus and the work that he did. But as I said, uh, though we should recognise the seriousness and the high cost for our salvation, the story does not end with Jesus' death. He was raised to new life, a picture of what we will receive. He not only was brought back to life, but he was brought up to be with God. Jesus, fully God, fully human, sitting at the side of God, ruling over us. And this is where we place our hope when things are strange, uncertain, when the world like is upside down, when our lives turn upside down. Our hope is in the one who raised Jesus from the dead, who proved himself to be honest and true and to do what he promised he would do. So as we receive the cup, uh, we'll reflect together over this hope that we have and we will drink together. Uh, May I say, praise the one who paid my debt and raise this life up from the dead. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's drink together. Thanks for listening to Movement today. If you enjoyed this show, then please take a second to give us five stars, tap subscribe and tell a friend. We are available wherever you get your pods. Season two of Movement is hosted and produced by the team at Baptist Churches of SA. We'll be back next week with another special guest.